this Wednesday, my alarm went off and I rolled out of bed and I put on my running gear and I stepped out into the cold tundra that is Minnesota in January to go for a run. And as I got close to home, I heard a noise. Now, in less time than it took for one second to click on my watch, in that short period of time, my mind was able to recognize a sound that sounded an awful lot like I've, sounds I've heard before where dogs get their ambush, unleash dogs, and they come jart, jutting out at you, right? Well, in just a fraction of a second, my mind identified that sound that I heard to sound kind of like that sound that I've heard before, and adrenaline was released, and my senses got put on full alert, and before I had any conscious thought, I already had turned in the direction of that sound. All this in a fraction, a fraction of a second, and all without me consciously thinking any of that. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Can I get an amen? We are wired in such a way by God, hardwired, where we have this section of our brain that all this data comes through. And as that data is coming through this section of our brain, it identifies potential threats instantly before we have to do any kind of conscious processing. It's, it's already there. We have a part of our brain that does it. It's a gift from God. And it's a gift that he's given not just humans, but he's given many creatures that specific part of the brain. Some people call it lizard brain. Some call it monkey brain. Many, many creatures have this capacity. There's a part of our brain, as I said, that, that screens all this data for potential threats. And if our brain feels threatened it goes into what's called fight or flight mode, right? We, we talked about this a year ago when we did our uh, anxiety series. Automatically, in a fraction of a second, we're prepared to fight or to flee, right? Now, here's an important question for us. Is fight or flight the only response that we as humans have access to? No, and this is so important. Fight or flight is not the only response that we can choose. We are capable of much, much, much more as humans. Last week, we launched a brand new series. And our jumping off point for the series was the book of Genesis. Let's remind ourselves of what it says in Genesis 127. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And when he did that, he gave us unique capacities unique capacities. There's a place to write this in your notes. We have a response ability that is far more advanced than other creatures. Isn't that true? We're able to respond to this data in ways that other creatures can't. We were created in the image of God. We have an ability to respond in ways that other creatures can't. Humans don't just have that lower section of our brain. We have all kinds of sections of our brain. And our amazing brains are able to think in incredibly complex and creative ways. The series that we launched last week is a series that we're calling Blame Space Less. Blame Less. And one of the things we talked about in our series opener is how blame is another way that our minds try to protect ourselves by blaming. That's, that's one of the ways we try to protect ourselves. It's an attempt for our brains to protect us. When we blame, we're trying to protect ourselves, and it can happen as quickly and as unconsciously 
as it did when I went running on Wednesday. It can be just like that. We are hardwired for relationships. We talked this about this last week. When something happens that we think somebody else is not going to like, we want to protect ourselves. We think we might be shunned if they see that we contributed to that thing that they don't like. We, we, we might be diminished in their eyes, and so our mind perceives that threat, and instantly, automatically, we go to blame, right? We go to blame. We also want to be at peace with ourselves. We want to believe that we're good, we're capable, we're worthy of respect. So when we fall short of our own expectations, that happens too sometimes. We quickly blame so that it's not us that's the problem. We're good. It's that other thing. It's that other thing. If we haven't yet internalized feelings of shame, which we're going to get to in three weeks, here's where our brains go on their own. This is a quote from a guy named Ben Dotner. He says, we basically trip over ourselves in pursuit of praise and credit, but we conveniently find a way to blame external causes, anyone or anything, for our failures. That's where our minds automatically go. They automatically go there. And when we don't take conscious steps to retrain our brains, we develop habits that are really, 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 really hard to break. Really hard to break. Roy Vadden speaks to this when he says this. He says, the frightening truth is that when we're not thinking about our thinking, our thinking starts to what? What does it say? Think on our own. When we're not thinking about our thinking, our thinking starts to think on our own. It becomes automatic. And that's good if you're really protecting yourself. It's bad if it's taking you down to a place where you don't want to go. How much thinking are we doing about our thinking? That is really a good question. It's a question worth reflecting on. There's a place to write this in our notes. Retraining your brain can transform your life. That may sound a little motivational speaker-ish, but it is true. Retraining your brains can transform your life. Fight or flight thinking, it can help you survive. If you don't retrain your brains to think in more advanced ways, you're never going to thrive. Right? A whole lot of brain research about transforming our minds has, has started to come out in the last 30 years. A lot of brain research. Scripture has been talking about this for thousands of years, hasn't it? That we can be transformed by the renewing of our what? Our minds. We can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In this series, we're going to apply this renewing of our minds principle to blame. And there's a place to write this in your notes. Blameless living is a better way to live. It is a better way to live. When we blame first and we blame often, it almost always makes things worse. Can I get an amen to that? When the first response that we have, when we instinctually, when we go right to blame, blame first, blame often, it almost always, always makes things worse. Instead of protecting ourselves, we actually end up making things worse. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to pause, we're going to reflect on what might happen if we specifically blame circumstance less. What if we blame our circumstances less? A whole new world opens up when we refuse to believe that becoming a victim of circumstance is our only option. Can I get an amen to that one? Right? You don't, that is not your only option. All right, well, on Wednesday, I had heard that sound that I told you about when I was running. That sound was a false alarm. It was a false alarm. My body got all worked up for nothing, right? I was in no danger at all. Well, on Thursday, the very next day, I almost, I almost responded to another false alarm, this time when my blame response went off. Here's the backstory. I had an appointment 
on the other side of town. And it usually takes me about 20 to 25 minutes to get there. So what I normally do, my workaround, is I usually give myself 30 minutes just in case something happens. I'm normally there 5 to 10 minutes early. That's good, right? You don't want to be late to, to an appointment. Well, this week, I was in such a rush that I, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to do that one more thing. You ever done the one more thing? So I, a lot of you have done the one more thing. So I do the one more thing, but my one more thing only took me five minutes. So I should be fine, right? Because I usually have five to ten minutes to spare. Well, isn't it always true that the time you take the extra five-minute thing is the time when there's a train that decides to put you between you and where you're supposed to go? And then after the train, it's every red light between here and downtown St. Paul. Everyone, it goes off. So my blame response kicks in, and I want already in my head, automatically, I'm not thinking I need to blame something. Automatically, this thought pops in my head. When you get there, tell Ethan about the train. Tell him about the red lights. I'm like, wow. Wow. But I had this little wristband that someone gave me. (laughs) (laughs) Which are available at the uh, resource table for free. They're really helpful. Because I had this little wristband on my wrist. And when I got there, I decided not to talk about the train. And instead, I just said, hey, Ethan... I am so sorry. I know your time is valuable. And I did not give myself enough time. I'm sorry. Guess what? I didn't get shunned. And I didn't get diminished. In fact, it was really interesting because Ethan said, you know what usually happens is every day I get blame, 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 blame. No one ever does this. And we ended up having this little blame bonding moment, you know? (laughs) All because I didn't automatically listen to that response. Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to magnify the stakes. And let's magnify the complexity about a billion times. And we're going to look at an example where someone overcame a set of circumstances that was way beyond his control. Way beyond his control. So what we're going to do now is let's move beyond self-help, right? Because we could just kind of go down that little self-help thing, and self-help is only so helpful. What we're going to do is let's seek wisdom from the Word. So if you have your Bible with you, let's open up to the book of Nehemiah. Love the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah. And let's start right in chapter 1. We'll get as far as we can here with the time that we've got. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to take one home today. We keep a stack each and every week there in the back there for you. Please take one as a gift um, as you go today. All right. Uh, We're going to start with... Chapter 1, verse 3, and as we're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of context behind what we're going to look at here. In the year 586 B.C., this is not a story that is just a story. This is history anchored in our timeline. In 586 B.C., the city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonian Empire. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed, and many of the survivors were then carried off into captivity. Well, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persian Empire right around 539 B.C. And what we have is we have these books of the Bible. Um, We call them Ezra and Nehemiah. Back when they first came out in their original form, they were one book. It was just one book. And this book takes place, well, at least the part we're going to look at here today with Nehemiah. The year is 445 B.C. And this man named Nehemiah, he is now serving in that Persian kingdom under the Persian king. He's in the citadel of Susa, which was the winter residence for Persian kings in that time and in that place. Nehemiah was a Jew, and his heart, his heart was with his people, 
His heart was with his homeland. Well, one day, Nehemiah's brother and several companions brought Nehemiah this report. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. Here's the report. They said to me, this is Nehemiah talking first person, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, they're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem, it's broken down. And the gates are destroyed by fire. Well, this report of his city, which represented all of the children of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, this report just wrecked him that those people were humiliated. You know, and their city had been destroyed and their, their, their walls were still broken down. It just wrecked him. Let's move on to, to verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. And I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, interesting. Instead of immediately going to the blame response, because that would have been easy to do, right? God, why did you let this happen? Or blaming Babylon or blaming Persia. He he has a different response. He immediately, he had retrained his brain to go immediately to prayer. Prayer and fasting. That's where he, he went. In fact, then he begins to do something else really, really healthy. He begins then the next step as he looks inward. He says, how have I, how have my people contributed to this? And this is just healthy stuff. Verses 5 through 6. Let's turn there. Verses 5 through 6. And I said, this is part of his prayer. He says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear Be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have committed against you. Even I, even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, the manner in which he begins his prayer, it's really, really relevant, relevant, relevant to what we're talking about today. He um, he, he starts by describing God as the Lord and that when you see it all caps like that in your Bibles, that's specifically referring to Yahweh, the God of Israel. He says, Yahweh, God of heaven. So he kind of puts these two things together and that's a really powerful prayer because what he's doing is he's saying, God, you're over all things. Any circumstance I come into, you're sovereign over all things. It was also interesting studying this passage this week because the Persians had a version of that title for their, one of their deities this God of heaven. And so Nehemiah, in addition to saying that he believes in the concept of a God of heaven, he's saying, no, 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 there's one, there's one God that I believe and trust in. And he is God overall. And his ears and his eyes are attentive to those who love him and keep his commandments. Brings us to verse seven, where he says, we have acted very corruptly against you, corruptly against you. And we have not kept your commandments, the statues, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Again, it would be so easy at this point. Point blame somewhere else, right? This is a, this is a, this was a time way before him. These are other people. These are other nations, all these kind of things, but he doesn't do that. He owns what he can own first. And after, after doing the difficult work of looking inward first, Nehemiah now begins to shift his focus from what happened to, okay, what do I do? Another healthy thing from what happened to what can I do about it? His focus was not, why isn't anybody doing something about this? His focus becomes, all right, what do I do about this? 
verses 8 through 11. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the outermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name and dwell there. They are your servants. They are your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's talking about the king. Now I was cupbearer, he tells us as the readers, to the king. Now what we see here, we see Nehemiah is not just doing that lower level brain thing. He's using these other areas of the brain that God has given us. And as he's doing that, he begins to think how I can access, how I can access higher powers. There's a place to write this down. If we continually, if we continually blame our circumstances, we're never going to discover our full capacities. If we just keep blaming circumstance we're, and, and we say, there's nothing I can do. I'm a victim here. We're never going to realize our capacities, what we actually can do. You and I have been given greater response ability than most of us ever even stop to excess. The blameless circumstance mindset says this. It says, what can I do? Jerusalem's way over there. I, I'm in a citadel in Susa. I'm a, I'm a cupbearer to the king. That's what the blame circumstance mindset says. If you only take one thing away from today, here it is. Write, I encourage you to write this down. Bring this question home. Reflect on it. What if we blamed circumstance less? And what if we became more resourceful? What if we blamed circumstance less and became more resourceful. What if, instead of letting our blame response let us off the hook by doing nothing, what if we considered the resources that we have access to? The blame first, blame often response says, I'm a cupbearer way over here in Jerusalem. What can I do? What's the blameless response? It's the same words, different emphasis. I'm here in Susa, I'm cupbearer of the king. All right, what can I do? What can I do? What resources do I have right now? What resources could I obtain over time? When we blame first and blame often, our brains attempt to protect us from just how scary it can be to ask that question. And it can be scary, can it? It can. Nehemiah was scared. I mean, I've, I've heard so many sermons on Nehemiah and what a great leader he is. And there's some great material about leadership. I think one of the things that made him great is he admitted, I'm scared. I'm scared. Let's take a look. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine. I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then it says he was what? What did he say to us? He lets us in. He says, I was very much what? I was afraid. Now, there's a whole lot we don't know as we study the book of Nehemiah, including a whole lot of questions about the dates. But what we do know is that Nehemiah had been laying a foundation for this moment. He'd been laying a foundation with prayer and with fasting, possibly for months, before this opportunity to say something to the king came up. 
He had been praying, he'd been fasting, and now comes the moment of truth because the king says, hey, what's going on? What's going on? And what Nehemiah was about to say was a big deal because he was about to say, hey, I think I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem and rebuild those walls. Why is that a big deal? Why is that a big deal? Could be a big deal for a whole lot of reasons. Archaeologists have discovered Persian art and one of the interesting things they've seen in Persian art are some scenes that happen in the, the court, in the king's court. And many of these depictions have the people in the court with their right hand over their mouth like this. And so they try to speculate, what does that mean? Does that mean, hey, be quiet, don't speak up around the king? Does it mean we don't even want to defile him with our breath? What does that mean? All we know is it's there like that. So maybe in part... Nehemiah's afraid, hey, you don't just blurt in the king's presence, right? That could have played into his fear. It could have also been more significant than that. If you read, what was, what was the other book in our Bible that is part of the same book of Nehemiah? What is it? It's Ezra. Read Ezra. In Ezra, it says they started to rebuild those walls. Who shut it down? It says king, King Artaxerxes. So if this is the same King Artaxerxes, what's Nehemiah saying? Nehemiah saying, hey, you know that thing that you shut down? I'm asking you to send me to go start it back up. Whoa. Here's another challenge that's going on. It could have been that. Could be another this other challenge. This was a turbulent period for the Persian Empire. Right around this time in history, there was a revolt that broke out in Egypt. It took about five years to put that down. While that's going on up in the northern regions, there's more revolts. It could be that Nehemiah was on great terms with the king, and Nehemiah knew what the king was going to say. That the king was going to say, Hey, no, I know this is on your heart, but I need you here. It could have been that. Or... Maybe it was just this fear that a lot of us have that he was going to go to the king and the king was going to say yes. And now he's got to go try to fix this thing that no one's been able to fix. Wow. It could have been any one of those. It could have been a combination of those things. Again, there's a lot we don't know. What we do know is that Nehemiah was scared. He was scared. I once read a story about a woman. Supposedly, it's a true story. She was trapped in a burning building and she was 80 floors up. So she's in this burning building, 80 floors up. And as people began to evacuate, she froze because she was paralyzed in fear over confined spaces and heights. And that stairwell, the idea of going to a stairwell terrified her so much that she froze and she wouldn't go as everyone's evacuating. So this fire is coming up. People are evacuating. She's frozen up there on floor 80. So some of her coworkers found a firefighter said, we got this woman and she's frozen in fear up in, on floor 80. And so the firefighter goes and he says, we got to go. And he starts to pull her towards the door and she's screaming and she's kicking. And she says, I am scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. And the firefighter looks her in the eye. And he says, that's okay, go scared. That's okay, go scared. How many of you need to hear that sometime? <laughs> it's okay, go scared. And he just repeated over and over and over again, that's okay, go scared. That's okay, go scared. One step at a time, all the way down to safety. It's okay, go scared. Nehemiah was scared, but he had a decision to make. And he said, I'm not just going to listen to fight or flight. 
I'm going to go scared. Nehemiah 2, chapter 3. And I said to the king, may the king live forever, because I may not, right? After this, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? It's important to note here, Nehemiah, he had earned the respect of the king by this point. Why do we know that? Because he's a cupbearer. That was a big deal in that time, in that place. Do the research on this, and you're going to see. Now, there's like some different opinions on all the exact nature of it, but almost every one of these, not almost all of the sources say this was a big deal because you are not only selecting the wine for the king, you're making sure none of it's poisoned. So this king is only going to put a trusted person in that role. He is trusting Nehemiah with his life. So Nehemiah had earned that trust. Cupbearers in that time and that place not only were, were often uh, associated with that role, but they often had direct access to the king, and sometimes they were the chief advisors. And they sometimes would even be the ones that would bear the signet ring, which was where he put a stamp on official actions. We could spend a whole week or more talking about this. You know, at work, it's so easy to blame. Why am I not getting promoted? Why am I this and that? Earn the respect first. And act in respectful ways, right? Instead of blaming circumstance. All right, here's another thing that separated Nehemiah from the others. Can anyone point, uh, anyone, anyone can point out a problem. Anyone can point out a problem. Nehemiah was prepared with a proposal. Here we go. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Then the king said to me, okay, what are you requesting? What's your plan? There's a problem. What's your plan? <laughs> so what did Nehemiah do? Whew, here we go. What was his response again? The first thing he did, he shot up a prayer. You ever heard that phrase, uh, that term flare prayer? <laughs> God, I need you right now. Flare going off, right? I prayed to heaven and I said to the king. And so it began. And so it began. And if you continue to read Nehemiah, there's a reason why people are studying this today. The leadership lessons. Because he proved to be quite a leader. Quite a leader. And they knocked that project out, which no one else could do. Well, he said his prayer. He shared his plan with this king. And this prayer piece, that is a theme. It's fascinating. As you read Nehemiah, look how many times that comes up. It was his go-to. It was his go-to. I prayed and, I prayed and, I prayed and. Somewhere along the line, Nehemiah had trained his brain to go to prayer rather than blame first. Nehemiah, he, he knew better than to limit himself to self-help. There's a place right this in your notes as well. Our responsibility is not limited to our personal capacity. Our responsibility is not limited to our personal capacity. Part of being resourceful is to say, what are the other resources around me, including people, and especially God? Especially God. What are these resources I can tap into? It's not limited to your personal capacity. Instead of pointing fingers at others, he enlisted their help in solving the problem. And most important of all, he continued to seek God's help. One of my all-time favorite Bible verses comes from Nehemiah. When he started building and he faced real threats from his neighbors. Here's what Nehemiah did. He said, we prayed and we what? We posted a guard. Those are not in conflict with one another. Don't let people say, if you post a guard, you really don't trust God. That's crazy talking, isn't it? It's like going in the highway. I trust that God's not going to let me get hit. I'm standing out here in ninja clothing at night. 
you know, in the middle of the highway. God can keep me safe, can he? Yes, but that's foolish, right? Don't ever do that, routineers. This is not wise, right? God gave us wisdom, right? What, what, what's God saying? What's God saying? Imagine how different the story would have been if Nehemiah had heard a report from his brother about all these horrible things and he said, hey, I'm a cupbearer, what can I do? Instead of, all right, I'm a cupbearer, what can I do? God, I'm going to start here. Give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. What can I do? Well, we're getting close to the end. As we begin to land the plane this morning, let's spend just a minute or two talking, how do we become resourceful? How, how, how? So if you, you take one thing, take that whole part, what if we blame less and became more resourceful? If you take two things, two things, add this to that list, we can retrain our brains to become more resourceful by, by practicing proactivity. Practicing proactivity. Stephen Covey. He popularized that word proactivity in the classic book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. There's a reason why that book has stood the test of time. When you're proactive, when you are proactive, you refuse to react like you are a victim of circumstance, right? You refuse to react when your brain just says, okay, protect yourself quickly this way. Reactive says there's nothing I can do. Proactive says, all right, let's brainstorm alternatives. Reactive says, it's just the way I am. It's just the way I am. Proactive says, hey, I can choose how I'm going to respond. This quote sums productivity up as well as any I've ever seen. I love this quote. Proactive people carry their own weather with them. I love that quote. Proactive people carry their own weather with them. Blaming holds us back from becoming. It is easy to blame. It is easy to say things like, if I only had more time, if I only had more money, if I only had more luck, if we only had better refs, <laughs> right? If I, if I only had a better boss, if we only had better employees, blame holds us back from becoming. When you study successful people, the whole victim of circumstance myth gets deconstructed really, really fast. There are countless examples of people who overcame insane challenges by practicing proactivity. Roy Vadney studies successful people. Here's one of the things he discovered. He says, quote, it is not that successful people find it easier to do things that most people don't like doing. It's that they think differently about it. Success isn't a matter of circumstance. It's a matter of choice. Well, each week, we're going to give you a practical tool, practical tool, something you can practice. And the reason we started with circumstance and proactivity is this is the one that fuels all the rest you're going to get throughout this series. It's, it's kind of like this. I didn't come up with this. I, I, I thought this morning, how can I demonstrate this more visually? And so I came up with this idea this morning, so it might be horrible, all right? But, but I'll test it on you, and if it's okay, then I'll bring it to the 1045 service, all right? So proactivity is kind of like the battery. A lot of, um, a lot of equipment now is going to, to battery-operated, and it's awesome. The new tech they've got with batteries, it is just a game changer. And so proactivity is like this battery. This is what fuels the rest of the tools that we're going to give you. So, for instance, next week we're going to talk about some tools that you can have when it comes to blaming others. Well, proactivity is the, is the, is the starting point because you're saying, I'm not, I'm not just going to blame others. I'm going to use some of the tools that we give. So it's like that. You can pop proactivity in and, you know, you can blow the leaves, right? And then what's beautiful about this battery is that I can take this exact same battery and we have a weed whip and I pop that in a weed whip. And so I can use the exact same idea of proactivity 
in a different application. And then we've got the lawnmower version. So I popped this in the lawnmower. And so we take the same thing, proactivity, not just listening to the lizard brain, the monkey brain, and we can take that and apply it in different situations. That's why this is so important. But like any other thing, it takes practice. It takes practice to say, instead of jumping to blame, which my brain is usually doing right away, I'm going to pause, and instead of blaming, I'm going to blame less. I'm not going to go there first. I'm not going to go there often. I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to think, what could I do instead? So think about that this week when it comes to circumstance. Instead of saying it's the train's fault, use it as an opportunity to maybe give yourself more time, right, or something like that. I love this last quote that we're going to give you here. The daily leads to the dream. It's these daily things, these daily choices, the daily leads to the dream. All right, again this week, let's focus on circumstances. Let's use our God-given response ability, pause and consider how resourceful we actually are. And far, far beyond any other resource. Far, far beyond any resource. Let's remember and follow the example that Nehemiah set and train ourselves first, our first proactive response. God, what would you have us to do? What would you have us to do? And there's a place to write this down. If you're here last week, you already were able to fill these blanks in. If Christ's sacrifice can make you blameless, well, his spirit can help you blame less, right? He wants to help. And you consider the circumstances that Jesus faced. It would have been easy to say, no way, how am I going to save the sins of the world? I'm this poor kid living in Nazareth. Kidding? But he wasn't limited to those things. And his life ended up dividing history's timeline in two. If you want responsibility, align your plans with God's plans and they will succeed. Well, as we close, I want to share one last thing that I shared with those who were last week. One of the things I'm sensing with the series is that this series isn't just for us. It's not something we're just supposed to keep within these walls. And I don't know exactly what that means other than we're supposed to share this somehow with others. And so... How we steward that idea is something I'd love your input into. Blame is everywhere, isn't it? Blame is everywhere. There's a reason why Ethan (laughs) responded so positively when I said, I'm sorry, right? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. When as I was preparing this week, I came across a very interesting take on Nehemiah on thebibleproject.com. Nehemiah was very successful when it came to rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. And that's important because walls protect people. But there's always a danger. There's a danger when we forget that our great commission is to what? To go. It's to go and to make disciples. This is a resourceful congregation. This is an amazing, talented group with so many good ideas. So send throughout this series. Send your ideas our way and be praying And even fasting, I think I'm going to add that to my list. Praying and fasting. God, what would you have us to do to take this idea even beyond what we're experiencing here? All right, well, let's pray right now. And we'll seal this time with a song. So I want to invite the worship band to come back into place. Let's pray and continue with uh, this song. Father, thank you. Thank you for examples, not just of how to blow it like Adam and Eve, but thanks for examples like Nehemiah where he got some things right. <laughs> the picture that comes into my mind right away is uh, this world is literally on fire. And when I think of Australia and what's going on over there, Father, 
But at the same time, we see people who instead of saying, what can I do? They're saying, what can I do? And they're making a difference. Father, all around us. In fact, I pray right now that you're going to give a specific picture to each and every person of something in their life that isn't as it should be. And Lord, give them the question that they should be asking. The what can I do question. And, And Father, we pray that you would help us to align our thoughts with your thoughts. That we may be about the work that you will accomplish. And so, Father, we want to be about that. So help us right here, right now, to respond to your invitation to join you with this song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.